Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation that I'm going to call Dear Family Member. The thing is, we need to talk about some stuff, because I'm afraid there's a risk that we won't be talking about any of this ever again to one another. I'm a bit angry and a bit keyed up, and for that reason, I'm going to record this in a single take. I may use the pause button from time to time so that if I load a page to make a reference, I'm not caught waiting for that to occur. But for the most part, I'm going to do this particular inappropriate conversation without an edit. And I maybe only have done that once or twice before in the past. And the main reason I'm going to approach it from this manner is that it almost has to be free-flowing because of the level of frustration and almost disillusionment that I'm feeling. Oh, I could chalk this up to the election year and blame it all on the way presidential politics are managed in the United States of America. But this is a more of an in-house thing. This is more of a family thing. And it hits me from a couple of angles. First, I've had some people ask me in my close circle of friends and family for what I was going to do in this particular election cycle or what my opinion was. And I quickly found out, really beyond any doubt, that they were not interested in the answer to the question. These were conversations about politics where my opinion was not welcome or was not, uh, wasn't really genuinely being sought. It was a door being opened, and I think I've got an insight into how some unchurched people perceive evangelism today, where maybe they get the impression that a Christian is asking them questions not because they want to understand that person's spiritual experience or religious background, but simply to open, open a door and create a dialogue where they can deliver some hard words of correction to a very wayward person. And I got to tell you, on some level, I find that offensive. I believe, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but at least among my immediate family, excluding the in-laws and the in-laws of in-laws and you know, part of the broader circle I want to draw today, that I have thought more deeply about the political issues that are facing this country and being wrapped up in this particular election coming up in just a couple of days from the moment I'm recording than any other member of my family, and maybe than all of them combined. Because when I've had conversations here in the last two or three weeks, face-to-face, direct, political conversations, not that I was seeking them or wanted them, but because the conversations came to me, I find that the level of depth and the breadth of the thought among those that I was conversing with is generally, not always, but generally, kind of low, uh, somewhat shallow, if you will. So, Here I am, in podcast form, dishing back what I have been taking for the better part of two months now. And if the anger seems disproportionate, then I apologize. But let me start with the other reason that I'm frustrated. The beginning of an inappropriate conversations podcast, especially one that might end abruptly, depending on how keyed up I actually get here. I probably should do the housekeeping right up front, but the main reason I want to do the housekeeping here, at the beginning of a podcast entitled Dear Family Member, is that despite the fact that everything I'm about to say here in the next 30 or 40 seconds I've shared before directly with those family members, they were the first people that I contacted when I was going live with this thing. I wanted to give my closest circle of direct flesh and blood advisors an opportunity to say, you're not going to want to do this. Here's the list of reasons why I'm concerned. And although I didn't get a lot of feedback at the start of this, you know, five, six years ago, I have gotten some feedback in the last few days, but 
the feedback has made me wonder whether anybody, I mean, and I mean anybody in my family is actually aware that I'm currently doing a podcast and have been doing it for more than six years now. You can find the results of this work online at inappropriateconversations.org. I don't delete anything. www.inappropriateconversations.org is the way I access it. And every episode from the very beginning, all of Inappropriate Conversations and all of Walk the Earth can be found there. For those who are curious about the oldest material, kind of going back and wanting to, to get the Cliff's Notes versions and go beginning to end, there is a shortcut available at SoundCloud.com. I can be found there. IC underscore Greg is the identifier. And I've chosen to put just a few minutes from each show, sort of an audio clip, a hint of what the episode was about. Now, there are exceptions. If you were to begin with Inappropriate Conversations 1, and you work your way through that entire page or channel or whatever you want to call it on SoundCloud, you'll find that there are some cases where it's more than half an hour. And in at least one case, I think I just pasted the entire episode because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to excerpt it or how to make a clip that would make sense. But for the most part, it's a tighter, more narrow way of spending a few minutes with what was that topic and is that topic actually worth exploring in greater detail. I've just come to the conclusion that my family doesn't believe that any of these things are worth exploring in any detail whatsoever because they're not worth exploring even to the extent of remembering that they're out there. i got family members who have liked pages that I've had in the past, either Twitter, where I'm IC underscore Greg, or the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. It's out there listed as a cause. Or the Walk the Earth Facebook page, WTE Podcast. And they're, they've, at some point, at least once, maybe years ago, maybe as a courtesy, said, yeah, I'll like that. But if liking that means that even in the shabby way that Facebook handles things, they only see, you know, 5% of the things that I post there, it has to pop up from time to time, unless the things that I put on inappropriate conversations come with the perspective that I carry into everyday conversation and therefore maybe offended them in enough of a way that at some point they simply just said, well, I'm going to block that. Yeah, I remember liking it as a courtesy to somebody I know, maybe a friend, maybe a family member. Could it be Greg? I don't know. Maybe it could be Greg. Yeah, who knows? But I'm just going to block it because I don't want to see that stuff anymore. And that's possible because you know, I don't believe that any of them interact with me. It's a hard enough time in some cases getting people to interact with me on the actual home email, my home personal email, that is the way I would like to interact when email is the choice. And, of course, email is often a very suspect choice for family communication. But, again, I'd be shocked if very many, if any of them knew that I'm at ice, that, that icy underscore Greg at hotmail.com is the way to interact with this show via email. So that's a quick, tidy, kind of backward way of doing the housekeeping. You can interact with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, directly uh, via email at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And, of course, there's a website out there that has everything I've ever recorded, uh, at least under the auspices of inappropriate conversations and walk the earth. And people who seem perplexed at my political perspective and you know, doubtful that I've thought everything through well enough. Surely I must be wrong if I've not, you know, found a way to swallow hard as a quote unquote good Republican and vote for Trump or whatever their, their logic or mindset might be. That they have no idea where I'm coming from because they haven't paid any attention. Now, 
Again, that wouldn't necessarily bother me. I didn't start this because this was my way of continuing to interact with the in-laws now that we've lived several states away from where we, my wife and I first got married. No, I'm okay managing and even uh, limiting intentionally my interaction with a heck of a lot of the in-laws. Because to be honest with you, how many political conversations do you want to have with somebody who believes that an intelligent argument is screaming the word Benghazi three yards away from your face? as if you were somehow there and responsible for whatever went down on that particular day. So there's a lot of reasons why I've intentionally sort of said, yeah, especially with that older generation, sort of walled that off and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what I've always done with a couple of theories. One, people who want answers ask questions. If you don't ask questions, I don't feel any obligation to give you any answers. And life's an essay test so I feel obliged to give essay answers. So the way I handle, again, that that outer tier, the great aunt, great uncle, um, the uh, in-laws, in-laws, spouses kind of thing, is to basically just say, I'm totally okay not having this conversation. I'm just not going to have a shorthand version of it. You want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. You don't want to talk about it? That's fine. But don't insinuate that I haven't thought things through or that I don't have ideas or that I haven't done the research. I'm not going to name a lot of names here. I'm going to try to leave this as kind of one generic uh, composite figure of family member. And I know that's unfair because I'm dealing not just with direct family, but with in-laws and in some cases, maybe even in-laws of in-laws. So there's a, there's a generality that I've got to do here. I've got to make this anonymous in some way. But I will cite one example of having a, a conversation on the phone with my mom about whether or not... Um, whether or not Benghazi was the be-all and end-all of the situation with Hillary Clinton. And I just said, I've never really understand the disproportionate response to it. To me, the idea that Benghazi is her Watergate only works logically. The math only plays out. If what happened in Libya happened because she wanted to, wanted it to, she arranged it, she made the payments for the people who needed to be paid to make sure that it happened. And she was going to directly benefit from that attack and from the deaths of those people. I really don't meet anybody who I wouldn't consider to be on the fringe crazy side of the spectrum who think that is true. They have a lot of other things that they're mad about over it. And you know, they might you know, make that connection between um, murder and negligence and and whether an accident's really an accident or whether an accident is somehow uh, subconsciously on purpose or all that. But you know, when you're talking about Watergate, you're talking about a willful strategy to subvert the American political system by stealing in the intellectual property of the other party, which ironically is going on right now. We'll get to my point of view about some of this stuff as we kind of roll through my responses to people who either only ask the question passive-aggressively, or ask the question, but when given the opportunity, shut down and refuse to listen to any answers. So consider this show, me, dumping on something that I think desperately needs to be dumped on. The seriously dysfunctional, troubling, and frankly disheartening electoral process, as it's played out in 2015-16 in particular, but this is a continuum. We've been on a slide for quite some time now. The standard set in 2008 when the Bush family handed over the White House to the Obama family looks today like an oasis in what has become an absolute post-apocalyptic desert of incredibly inept 
statesmanship and, frankly, diplomacy. If we can talk about how two Americans who both share a political bent, who both run for public office, need to engage in open and careful diplomacy with each other, it's a very strange thing. And maybe when I get to the different drummer, I'll I'll talk a little bit about how I think we ought to be managing some of this stuff. But no, my, my level of frustration here reflects the fact that it's probably time for me to do just a little bit of dumping. And I will share the point of view of the people who've responded to me. But first, you know, with my mom, I told her, I said, you know, I, I didn't see this level of outrage when we were talking about the 10 plus embassy and consulate attacks that happened during the George W. Bush administration. Meaning that if you look at all the secretaries of state under Obama, and the consulate attack count and the body count and so forth and so on versus all the consulate and embassy attacks under all the secretaries of state of George W. Bush, it's not even close. It doesn't even compare. Benghazi is, I don't want to call it a drop in the bucket, but it's a, uh, it's a fraction when you compare the two. And of course, as I've mentioned before in inappropriate conversations, uh, I'm a journalism major. When I went to school, that was what I studied. I thought I might be a writer or a, a print based commentator or editorial writer of some sort. And I do that kind of research just naturally. Uh, I think I've mentioned that I wish I was one of those people who was a little bit better at going from one book to the next and picking up a book and seeing it through. Uh, the always be reading type of person. And unfortunately, I'm probably a little bit less that way and a little bit more of an always be researching type of a person. That I might read as many words per minute as I would otherwise, but they're usually scattered about and somewhat more selective. Because that's just the nature of the nature of the business in terms of I'm formulating opinion, therefore I'm looking for other opinion and trying to gauge opinions against opinions, and I'm weighing credibility of the writers and so forth and so on, and comparing things to history, at least history to the extent that I know it, or researching the history when I need to to back it up. My mom's response was, Well, how do you know that? That sounds like that that's not what I heard. Well, it's not what you heard on Fox News. So, all right. I'll grant it it's not what you heard on Fox News. But I don't limit myself to a single source, and I don't approach this stuff from one perspective. And therefore, the journalism degree that I got, and the sorrow that my mom felt when I walked away from that business and went instead in other directions, just kind of made me sad. Because I thought, this is the same person who gave me a, you know, a small degree of a hard time about deciding I wasn't going to be a journalist anymore, that that wasn't a business that I saw in my long-term future. Because I think she wanted to connect the dots or wanted to be, wanted me to be connecting the dots between the formal education that I got and the career path I was on. And it seemed to her maybe risky or perhaps some sort of a betrayal. I'm not sure. But those same journalistic instincts and the same level of experience in terms of doing research, um, didn't seem to be anything that she had any value or esteem for now. So the fact that, I've had that training and I'm still the same person. And even if I'm working in a totally different industry, doing a very different kind of analysis, didn't seem to value, didn't seem to be valued, didn't seem to count for a damn thing. The other thing is, there's a risk this might be an explicit language episode because I don't intend to do a careful edit. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. Because I think when it comes to this notion of approaching things with bias and assuming that everyone who has a different idea from you is biased... I think probably what I need to do is include some commentary directly to one family member who did, in one channel or another, offer me some feedback. Now, I've received this feedback in more than one way, and I'll be honest and say some of this feedback I've found to be more than just a little bit offensive. 
Um, for anyone to yeah, insinuate that maybe my Christian walk isn't what it ought to be, or I don't know the Bible as well as I should, when clearly I'm sitting in a position of having studied it in a far greater detail, that's a little bit, that's a little bit off-putting. Um, so, to some degree, I, I kind of come to this from that, and this is maybe the inspiration to say, it's time for me to say, hey, dear family member, here's where you're missing the boat. So let me just share a little bit of some of the give and take here, because this all crept up to me in conversation around some some big misunderstandings. And a lot of these misunderstandings are the manipulative nature of what we're finding coming out of the Trump campaign. Just today, as a matter of fact, uh, this weekend as I'm recording, Donald Trump had a moment uh, on stage in Nevada that looked to me like it might have actually been staged. It looked like it might have been some something pre-planned, but I've now come to believe that maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just a, a whole combination of misunderstandings. But somebody in the crowd, and, and Trump tries to maintain a very homogenous crowd, so anybody who has a different opinion is going to stick out like a sore thumb. But somebody in the crowd who has since identified himself as a Republican, who disagrees with Trump as the candidate so much that he's publicly said he's voting for Clinton, and he went to the rally uh, in that Nevada setting with a sign that he unrolled and held up that was like Republicans against Trump. Now, this led for the people around him to uh, to violently attack him. He was assaulted. The police had to come and intervene and get him out of there for his own safety. But at some point, the people who were assaulting him screamed that he had a gun. And that led Secret Service to you know kind of surround Trump and get him off the stage for his own good. And of course, once, once um, the authorities realized that there was no gun, that the whole thing was a complete misunderstanding or a hoax, then Trump came back out and gave his speech. But the Trump campaign is still referring to what happened as an assassination attempt. And worse, family members, the next day, after all the truth had come out, still referring to it as an assassination attempt, and still talking about it as if we're not recognizing the danger here, and that this is one more example of how dangerous the Clinton supporters are, and how violent they've turned. And don't get me wrong, it's not hard to find inside examples of people who are opposed to Trump who've engaged in acts of violence. What I find is interesting, though, is this sort of double standard that some folks have in their head, where I consider and say, yeah, somebody tried to burn down a Republican um, headquarters site somewhere in the Carolinas. But we also had a church that was scrawled in, in a vote Trump graffiti and burned, and burned almost completely, in Mississippi, which is not the first example of black church vandalism um, and arson in just the last three or four years. When that one family member a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, was yelling Benghazi in my face, it was because I challenged her faulty assertion that there were, quoting her, more ISIS terrorist cell team members based in Minneapolis, Minnesota alone than there were racists in all of America. That it offended her that I was suggesting that Dylan Roof, the man who went into a black church in South Carolina and shot and killed, you know, more than just a handful of people, was doing so as a racist, even though he self-proclaimed the white supremacy that, that led him to that point, and the intention on his heart to start a race war by engaging in this particular killing spree. He said he was a racist, in other words. But me saying that he was a racist and sort of agreeing with his assessment of himself, not that I've ever met Dylan Roof, was somehow offensive. And that it was obvious to her that my, my focus was in the wrong spot. And you get into these, these disagreements that are based 
in my opinion, more than anything else, unbiased as much as anything else. Well, the flashpoint for some of these folks was Hillary Clinton uh, saying something she later trucked back and apologized for and you know, referring to a large group of people as deplorables. And my issue from the start wasn't that um, that was a great political strategy on her part. My issue was with people who said that she was factually wrong in her statement, that somehow it was impossible to divide Trump supporters into two or more than two groups, and one of the groups that you might divide the Trump supporter group into would could be arguably filled with people who are men's rights activists, pro-rape people, um, KKK and other white supremacy groups, um, other sort of people who are, you know, a semi-anarchist, anti-government, anti-American, in my opinion. And that it's not necessarily wrong to take the kind of people who would burn down a black church in Mississippi and say that, at the very least, that action is deplorable. And if you try to hold everybody in unconditional positive regard, to give people as much of the benefit of the doubt as humanly possible, and therefore accept Clinton trucking back her insult and saying, she didn't she didn't mean to attack a whole group of people it wasn't the right thing to do she shouldn't have said it that way say well what are we talking about can we at least agree that some behavior is deplorable and apparently i've got family members for whom that is really difficult to do those words just don't roll right off their tongues and the other problem that i've got is a disagreement about whether or not the numbers make sense i was so frustrated on a recent visit face to face with brothers and sisters and moms and so forth that I finally just, uh, the conversation led down the direction of why I struggle to kind of deal with the religious right and the influence that the religious right has had. I've got an entire spinoff podcast that can be found on this same feed. Uh, Walk the Earth is a different show than inappropriate conversations with a different format. And among other things, it's basically a question a month or roughly a month looking at some of the things that I've experienced when leaving a lifelong relationship with one Protestant denomination and trying to find a new church that wasn't going to make the same mistakes that I was seeing and perceiving when my family and frankly, a lot of other people that we knew in the, in that particular congregation decided to walk away and go somewhere else. Walk the earth documents that walking away and thankfully for me finding somewhere else. But as I've shared on walk the earth before I shared with my family that I wouldn't be shocked if 80% of the churches that are within a 30-minute drive from my home are churches that I would have to disqualify because they're not meeting the standard of Jesus in the Great Judgment, Matthew 25. They're not reaching out to those who are at their moment of most desperate need. They're more likely to be the ones sitting on the sidelines looking at somebody like me for interacting with all the different friend groups that I interact with and asking a sneering, divisive question about why I hang around with those sinners. Literally, picking up the script of the Gospels and finding the moments where the Pharisees were sneering and saying things behind Jesus' back and putting into their own mouths the very words that came out of the mouths of those Pharisees. And what I encountered this week, and what has made it very difficult to record, because I've struggled to find a time when I can draw a line in the sand, because this crap keeps happening. This week... My criticism of people who are acting like those kinds of Pharisees, who are not only chasing people out of the church, but glad they're gone. 
the uh, in you know, Walk the Earth five, I think it was the least of these. Somewhere around March, April, the very first year, two thousand ten, of this particular podcast, I talked about you know we as a as a Christian you know group as a body of Christ have lost sheep roaming the hills that we are supposed to be co-shepherding. We're supposed to be part of creating a flock out of those. Uh, John chapter 10, talks. Uh, Jesus talks about us being part of a flock and him having sheep from another flock. And his desire is to make that one new flock of sheep. And that we may not know them. We may not recognize them as belonging to him, but they do. And that's his call, not our call. John chapter 10. But... For me, and my take is that we have, we just, not just that we have lost sheep roaming the hills that we're not paying attention to, that we're not doing our job of coming to retrieve. They were kicked out of the flock by some of the very same people who object to the fact that I worry about the message that we send when we engage in acts of supremacy toward those people. Let me give family members who are going to find this hard to listen to. Of course, I joke. They're not going to listen to it at all. They're not aware that I even have a podcast. <laughs> but my my too long different didn't read explanation for what my problem is with Donald Trump can perhaps be summed up in one sentence. I'll give it a couple more, but one sentence may just do it. Trump is essentially a supremacist. Some people can find that comforting, appealing. People who long for the good old days, back when his people who looked like Donald Trump were in charge, and they feel like they look like Donald Trump too, or at least they'd like to look like Donald Trump, and they want to be in charge again, and and they've uh, they've not only felt that their their privilege in the expanse of their particular preferential treatment has been threatened in some way, but maybe the biggest threat of all is that people are talking about it and calling it out, and suggesting that it's a good thing if all Americans truly were treated equally. No. Fully named, this supremacy is obviously problematic, if not deplorable. It is not hard to find examples of Trump either asserting or agreeing with, or at the very least retweeting people who could be described as white supremacist, male supremacist, wealthy supremacist, Christian supremacist. I could go on and on. The problem with it is that that ultimately leads to some forms of segregation. And I believe that segregation is an evil. It's a, it's in some ways a great evil. It is not American if you take the words of our founding documents seriously. Granted, there was a divide between action and words. And it certainly rails against the things that Jesus was trying to explain to us in passages like Luke 15, where he goes into parable after parable about bringing the lost back into the fold. That was the topic of the most recent Walk the Earth recording as well. So if you go to the feed at inappropriateconversations.org, uh, at, at least at the time that I'm making this recording, this podcast is coming out, I've gone almost a whole month without releasing anything. I skipped Inappropriate Conversations for the month of October because I simply could not get enough clarity of how I wanted to address the nonsense I've been dealing with sort of within my circles of family and friends. So the most recent episode is that Walk the Earth. But in there, I talked a little bit about segregation being a problem, and, and I wish I'd done so even better in a recent uh, Inappropriate Conversation show, uh, I think 186, just called Consent, where I tried to align the concept of consent to be governed with other forms of consent and talk about consent as a good. I intended to compare that in July of this year with the uh, the evil of segregation, and I don't think I did enough a good enough job. I don't even think I did a good enough job the last time I did one of these 
freeform, just sort of record it and let the chips fall where they may podcast. Uh, that one was January of 2015 called Letting Justice Roll. It turned out to be a long one. And I'm wondering, maybe fearing a little bit, if this one isn't going to turn out to be a long one too. Because what we're dealing with here is not really a difference of opinion. What we're dealing with here is a difference of fact. And I find that to be incredibly troubling. You see, for me, I use Inappropriate Conversations as a Facebook page. When things like this crop up, and I need to provide an answer to the question of, well, is is Trump really that bad? Is there really deplorable things happening out there? Or or is the number of people who've done these deplorable things or aligned themselves with these uh, deplorable ideas, for want of a better word, is the number really as big as people suggest? And to me, rather than tarnish my own Facebook page with all of this sort of stuff, I put it there. First time I did this was around the time that the Ferguson, Missouri um, situation kind of blew up a couple of years ago. And I was hearing things like, well, you know, this is an isolated incident. It never really happens. Uh, your facts are wrong. Um, I heard Bill O'Reilly say something different. Yeah, whatever. And and this was a uh, pastor friend of the family. And I just said, well, okay, I'm going to use my inappropriate conversations page because I knew he was looking at the page at the time to offer example after example after example of just another one of these police shootings and, and sort of without being confrontational, just saying, I'd love to have an explanation for why the Tamir Rice shooting was okay. I'd love to have an explanation for why we couldn't have done better with the Garner case in, in New York, in New York city. And to just sort of answer one question to say, does this never happen or does it happen a lot? Well, it happens a lot because I was finding more examples than I would ever care to put uh, to to retweet for one of a better word. I just wouldn't want to restate it that often. So I was picking and choosing examples. Because to be honest, there are some examples that I talked about in Letting Justice Roll uh, more than a year ago that, you know, there where the police shooting does make sense. That basically if you if you pull out a weapon and point it at somebody who's armed and charged with the responsibility to protect and serve society, you can expect that there's going to be an un, an unpleasant result for you. But that doesn't really apply to somebody who's at a Walmart shopping for a toy gun. That's not the same clear and present danger. That shouldn't bring out um, a wannabe SWAT team of sorts. So I've used the page before for that. And I've used it again here recently. So I want to go through the Inappropriate Conversations page and just look at things that I've shared lately to give a sense of a couple of things. First, um, this is happening more than people seem to acknowledge. And second... I'm going to grant you that I've got a ton of family members who will never, never hear this. Therefore, they'll never go to the inappropriate conversation page to look at it. And in some ways, I'm pissing in the wind, I suppose. But, you know, I'll give it a good shake when I'm done. When in doubt, I'm just going to try to focus on the, the headlines here. I'll see if there's one that I want to dive into. Trump assassination attempt turns out to be a Republican carrying a sign. Well, you know, today... I had a family member who called out that there was still an assassination plot, still a gun. Well, why is this important? This is important because if you really truly believe that the man who showed up to carry a sign and say there's more than one kind of Republican out there, this is, by the way, a point of view that I, I very passionately embrace. I am one of those other kinds. Uh, being a radical moderate, not fitting squarely into either Democrat or Republican, not truly being liberal or conservative – not having a home, and not feeling I need one. Because I find all of those either-wars to be fallacious, and therefore a big mistake. But the fact of the matter is, if you've convinced yourself, 
and you convince enough other people that Clinton has tried to assassinate Trump, then it sort of justifies the mentality of the person who comes along later and quote-unquote does the same thing. We've seen this. We've even seen it on the stages and political debates this year, uh, justifying the things that Trump has said and frankly done, as far as we can tell by people who've come forward, including some who have even got a court case in December, a civil trial waiting for him, unless the intimidation tactics that the Trump and his supporters have used uh, is going to effectively scare this person away, which has worked for many, many reporters. It's part of the reason that I would sympathize a little bit with some people who are not aware that there actually is a civil case charging him with his responsibility in a rape scenario. Um, for not hearing it, because Trump has done a very good job doing what I've heard some lawyers refer to as legal bullying to make sure that people don't tell the story, even if the story is there and newsworthy and kind of fits all the standards of Times versus Sullivan in terms of what is a political figure, what is a celebrity, and what is a story of, of interest and concern, what is news, in other words. But their excuse for Trump's behavior is, well, Bill Clinton... And um, because Bill Clinton did some bad things and Hillary didn't divorce him, well, then Hillary, too. So I've taken some flack lately for even on my personal Facebook page saying some things that were critical of Trump. Those things have generally been asking Christians why we throw people out of the church and some of the conservative Protestant denominations for getting a divorce. Why we uh, why Lifeway stores isn't going to carry albums by um Amy Grant, because of some adultery that happened in her past 20 years ago. Why we have this standard for adultery for some people, but but not for Trump. And when somebody actually does try to repair their marital relationship and see things through, despite the worst kinds of betrayal, that instead of celebrating, embracing, and holding that up as an example, or at least ignoring it as somehow neutral, they were going to attack Hillary Clinton, not just for the things her husband did, but for the fact that she didn't divorce him, even though at times in her life, the denomination where she worships might have kicked her out of the church for divorcing her husband. And I know that from experience because I saw it firsthand in the 1970s. Not Clinton's church, but my own experience inside that same Protestant denomination. So, no, it's a bit of a struggle for me to just sort of smile and nod and look the other way here when these things happen, because I feel like that's the double standard. And the other one that I shared was, if for my entire lifetime we've been told that character is what matters and that we're willing to vote for somebody who is a deficient candidate on the conservative side of the political spectrum, but we should vote for that person anyway because their character is superior to the character of their opponent and that that alone was enough. Well, you can throw that out the window. But when you call out that that piece of our testimony has changed in a way that the world is going to notice and that unchurched people are going to be able to point to evangelical Christian support of Trump as a reason to never step foot inside a church again for the rest of their lives. Well, what do we do about that? And why is it wrong for me to bring it up? It cuts to the very core of the gospel message. We're supposed to go out and make disciples, not, you know, give the disciple, give the potential future disciple some reason to not even pay attention to us to reject us before we even speak, because our hypocrisy is so pungent that they can't possibly find a way to see through it. So that's one. But as I go further back on things I've shared with, with Facebook, one was a, a list of things that were done that were arguably unethical 
and certainly sketchy related to the email situation. I mean, the bottom line is I think that wouldn't shock me if the current head of the FBI didn't find himself facing charges for violating the Hatch Act. Um, there's there's something very funky about not done not having done enough research before going public with what might come out of the research that he and his people had not done. There's a problem with that. Um, further back, I, I got Donald Trump. I got Barack Obama dealing with a protester in one of his speeches and modeling exactly the right way you'd want somebody to do it as president, representing those qualities, not just a politician, but also statesman and, and diplomat. And Trump, I got a video that I put up on Inappropriate Conversations uh, at Facebook of Trump actually misquoting, mischaracterizing, and lying about what actually happened in that situation, point by point. But this is really not fundamentally different from what um, Governor Pence did in the vice presidential debate, where uh, Kane, maybe a little bit confrontationally, maybe a little bit uh, in an in a insufficiently collegial way, continued to call out to Pence things that Trump had said and done, and Trump's and Pence flat out lied, saying that Trump never said that. That's not what he did. You're lying about it. You know, the level of dishonesty here is actually somewhat staggering. It calls to mind past episodes of inappropriate conversations, as a matter of fact, when I think about it. Because as I look further back, I've dealt with this problem of Christians who lie before. Uh, inappropriate conversation 72, truth or consequences for Christians, specifically around the issue of abortion. I may get there just a touch today, too. We'll see. That came out October, maybe November of 2011. Somewhere in that, you know, somewhere in that area. Father of Lies was the name of Inappropriate Conversations 114. That came out in February of 2013. Dealing with this, this, this sense of whatever I've got to say as a member of the religious right to get what I want is going to be okay with Jesus because I'm part of the religious right, therefore I'm part of the moral majority, therefore I'm right, and I can do no wrong. It's an ends versus means approach that when I was being raised in the church, I was told was actually fundamentally offensive. That everything about doing the wrong thing to get the right result was viewed as anti-Christian, or at the very least, un-Christian to one extent or another. Going further back. Uh, Franklin Graham goes to Russia, praises Putin, slams America, attacks Obama, and denigrates gay people. Uh, there was one conversation that popped up with these friends and family over the Dixie Chicks, and that there's still people on the right side of the political spectrum who I think would give the members of that group reason to be very concerned about their security if they went out in public to do an autograph signing. That there's there's an anger and vitriol there. When you ask people, what's all that about? I mean, you're an American. You have freedom of speech. You have the right to speak. And the list of things that people come up with in their head to justify their duplicity is absolutely staggering. Well, she, she criticized the President of the United States on foreign soil in front of a non-American audience, and that's where I draw the line. Well, these same people haven't drawn the line with Franklin Graham. Some of them, to their credit... Ignore the man and kind of act like he doesn't exist. Because maybe on some level they realize how seriously he's tarnishing the legacy of Billy Graham, which I'm going to tell you, I don't think was a 100% pure as gold legacy to begin with. But it certainly was a good legacy on the scale of, you know, bad to great. And they just ignore him. Or they're on board with Franklin Graham and they would just as soon uh, 
dodge and parry past any criticisms, criticisms I may offer? Remember, Franklin Graham was embroiled in the Wheaton College controversy that I talked about in a couple of Walk the Earth episodes about a year ago, where basically the theology of Franklin Graham was exposed to think he's a man who believes that there are multiple gods, that he just happens to have the right one, because unlike the truly Christian theology and Jewish theology, that there is one god and one god only. Well, that argument doesn't help him execute a witch hunt against somebody who's just too damn nice to those Muslims for Franklin Graham's taste. So, no. Um, others. Uh, Democrat, Democratic National Committee has told the FBI it found evidence that its headquarters was bugged. This is much closer to a Watergate scenario than anything you're going to find in Benghazi. And maybe here's the point where I should pause for a second and say that among the other things I think is upset family members, I put out some... What I consider to be what they consider to be controversial ideas, but they weren't. I was just asking questions. I'm just genuinely very confused. If I were to tell my family that one of the things I love doing more than anything else is jumping online the second I find out that an attractive female celebrity's phone has been hacked, because I want to look at those pictures. I don't care if they're nude or bikini or you know nightgown or lingerie or just on the beach with their boyfriend. If those pictures are out on the internet, I got to be the first one out there looking at them. Well, that is not who I am. I actually have tried to be very careful to not inadvertently stumble across this stuff through clickbait or web advertisement, because I believe that it is wrong to go in and steal things that people intend to be private and make them public to the broadest possible audience, in part as an effort to embarrass that person. Well, listen, the Democratic National Committee and the Republican National Committee are absolutely not in any way whatsoever part of our government. We've heard this loud and clear from the conversation with Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary process. And it's absolutely true. The most recent inappropriate conversation on this topic was constitutional crisis. It is one that I've frankly shared many more times than I normally would. Because to me, Inappropriate Conversations 188 provides a lot of really important answers to curious friends and family. How am I voting? Why am I voting this way? Why is my passion about this so disproportionate? What's it all mean? Why, is, why does it matter? Well, one of the reasons that it matters is that I firmly believe that there is nothing constitutional whatsoever about political parties. And therefore, there is nothing constitutional whatsoever about a majority in any chamber of Congress, or in any state legislature, or any state for that matter, or any popular opinion poll, political parties have nothing to do with whether or not you can appoint a Supreme Court judge. Nothing. And it's actually anti-constitutional. I read an article lately that said that, yeah, maybe you can make an argument that it's not well and truly strictly unconstitutional. Well, that wasn't the argument I was making, was it? The argument I was making was that it was anti-constitutional, and that it was an intent an attempt to subvert the balance of power and to allow one branch of government to potentially, if taken to its logical end, destroy, completely destroy another branch of government. If Clinton gets elected and then reelected and another Democrat after her, and what we're hearing from people like Ted Cruz and John McCain can be trusted, that until there's a Republican in the White House, they're not going to fill any open Supreme Court vacancies as long as the Senate has a majority then you could see the end of the U.S. Supreme Court as we know it. None of these people are spring chickens. All of them are, I would generically say, my age or older. Plus, I kind of want to reject the notion that 
there's anything to be made, anything uh, to be deciphered from the argument that we have to vote for a Republican this year, otherwise the balance of power in the Supreme Court will be completely changed? No. That doesn't pass the giggle test either. Listen, Elena Kagan's 56 years old, John Roberts is 61 years old, or maybe 62 by now. I did this research a while ago. Sonia Sotomayor is 62 again. So these folks are under retirement age for just about any business you could name. They're not going anywhere. But when you talk about replacing Supreme Court judges, there's two issues to be dealt with. One is Scalia. And the bottom line is, Scalia, according to our Constitution, needs to be getting replaced by a Democrat. Should have been replaced months ago by Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. Or if there's some problem with Garland, Senate should have done their job months ago to unveil that so that we can deal with it and perhaps put forth a different nominee and deal with it that way. But you take Scalia out of the mix because Inappropriate Conversations 188 is clear about what the Constitution says and where the crisis lies here. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be that disagreeable if after the elections are over and in a lame duck scenario, it wouldn't bother me if Obama basically said the Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution does provide for a situation where the Senate simply cannot provide that advice and consent. We don't leverage those paragraphs, those parts of the paragraphs anymore, because we don't have a Senate that's gone six or nine months at a time. We don't have a, we have a world today where the Senate could potentially meet virtually if they really, really needed to. Um, because we're not a, you know, we're not the same structure that we were 240 years ago. But if the Constitution does provide for what do you do if the Senate can't provide its advice, then maybe that's good enough for what you do if the Senate won't provide its advice. But no, the real question facing us is not a vacancy created during Obama's term. It's the vacancies that will potentially be created during the Clinton administration or the Trump administration, depending on who wins. And so the big fear is built on a couple of really false assumptions. One is, well, gun rights, gun rights, gun rights. Uh, Donald Trump actually believes that if he's the president of the United States, he has the authority to order the Supreme Court to review and reconsider past Supreme Court cases, specifically about abortion and other things. He's wrong. The president doesn't have that power. But the other thing is that he believes that the Supreme Court has the power to simply take a black magic marker and just, you know, strike through the Second Amendment completely. That's not how it works. If you're going to get rid of a U.S., uh, if you're going to get rid of a constitutional amendment, and uh, I would say especially one of the Bill of Rights, but that's actually not true. The same procedure applies to all of them. You've got work to do in the Congress. You've got work to do in the state legislatures. The courts only come in later to say, well, okay, if you're going to create a new constitutional amendment that says this, then here's how we're going to interpret this and apply it to all the existing case law that's out there. It's a very different animal. So the Supreme Court does not pose any direct threat to the existence of the Second Amendment. That's crap. It's an argument that, frankly, anybody who makes ought to be embarrassed and ashamed about. One of the things that's occurred to me out of all this is that I was a little bit distracted as a student in a civics class in eighth grade. There's a couple reasons for that. First, I was a new kid in a new school in a new school district, didn't know anybody. Second, I had young women my age sitting both to the right of me and to the left of me who were attractive enough to be a distraction in and of themselves. But I really tried to do well in the class. I tried to pay attention. It was one semester of civics 
and one semester of economics. And I know I did better in high school civics than I did in high school economics. If I were to just try to mentally recall what my grades were, which I can't, but if I were to try. But this year's election cycle has demonstrated that not just the electorate, but frankly, the people running for office and not just the presidency. This applies to Senate candidates and you know county commissioner candidates as well. We act like we don't have any idea what our U.S. Constitution says. We act like we're incapable of understanding how the government of the United States has historically been run. And it's kind of shameful. But here's the answer to the argument of what does it mean if the next president replaces three Supreme Court justices. Well, first off, let me dismiss the idea that Hillary Clinton is going to be given the opportunity to replace more than three. Now, ceteris paribus. Traffic accidents occur. Uh, clearly, in the case of Scalia, unexpected health problems occur. But who's likely to retire? Which among these judges are likely to make a decision that they're done and that they're ready to step down? Well, it's not going to be Clarence Thomas. You get the impression that Clarence Thomas, though perhaps a little bit tired of the grind of being in Washington all those years, if he knew that he was going to be replaced by an appointee named by Hillary Clinton, would stay in office would try to stay in office if it meant propping his skeleton up behind the bench. He's not going anywhere. He's 68 years old. Samuel Alito is 66 years old. He was only appointed in the presidential term before Obama. I mean, this is a George W. Bush appointee. He's not going anywhere. We've already talked about the ones who are under 65. They're not going anywhere. So if Clinton does replace judges, if the worst-case scenario for the alt-right plays out, the number's three. And who would she be replacing? If you're replacing Ginsburg, who's 83, Kennedy, who's 80 this year, Stephen Breyer, 78 this year. And according to anybody you ask, those three are either the liberal wing of the court or two of the liberals and a swing voter on the court. Meaning that it is not possible for Clinton to be replacing conservative judges and overthrowing the balance of power in the U.S. Supreme Court. If the balance of power is going to tip ever so slightly from 4-5 um, to 5-4, depending on Kennedy and whether he stays and whether he continues to be the kind of swing voter that he's been, it's because of Scalia's untimely death. But Scalia's death happened when a Democrat was in the White House, a Democrat in his second term in the White House. So the American people have spoken, spoken twice on the issue, as a matter of fact. And my guess is that if you ask the average American if they would be willing to put up with more Obama rather than Clinton, you'd have a surprising consensus point of view between people who are going to vote for Trump and people who are going to vote for Clinton. Essentially what this means is that if you draw a line and say judges in their 70s versus judges who are not yet in their 70s, judges who may not be able to hang on four more years, but judges who certainly will, in my opinion, hang on four more years, there's no way that Clinton's going to be put in a position of replacing a conservative justice with one of her nominees. And it's absolutely intellectually dishonest to suggest otherwise. I just realized I've also made another decision in addition to running long, which I kind of feared. That's what happened with letting justice roll in January of 2015. But also, I'm probably not going to include any promos in this particular episode, and I may decide not to include any different drummer music in this particular episode. This might be truly standalone from that perspective. On the other hand, in some ways, I'm recording this for family members who I know will never listen to it. So the episode started off on a completely different path, and I haven't even really gotten to the end of the first point I was trying to make. 
This one will do it better than any other. But trust me, there's dozens of other examples of things I've posted to inappropriate conversations in the last couple of months to say, listen, there are lots and lots of examples of Trump supporters doing things which are reprehensible. And, you know, I don't know what kind of denial you have to live in to look at the KKK endorsing Trump and not see that that is somewhat problematic. Now, Trump being a reasonably good politician, getting better at it, I guess how I'd word that, did kind of rebuff that recommendation and say he wants no part of it. But that's duplicitous. He wants no part of an endorsement that he's frankly been seeking through his actions for more than a year now. No, no, no. The one that I saw was this. It was a final fact check of totals for the three presidential debates. With Donald Trump, according to the website that put this up there, making 104 false claims and Hillary Clinton making 13 false claims across those three different debates. So here's my problem with the right-wing logic that I've been dealing with. I've been encountering in my personal life, on Twitter, where I've been trolled, um, on Facebook. It goes like this. The, my, my, uh, my family member here might say, I can't believe anyone would dare to use a chart like this to criticize Trump. It clearly states both the candidates are liars. So here you are making an emphasis on the fact that Trump's a liar and not saying anything about the fact that Clinton's a liar. And that's your bias. So I've revealed your bias. It's a false equivalency. And that's the number one thing that I think I see this election cycle is false equivalencies just running amok. If one person has made 104 factual misstatements or intentional lies during three debates, and another one has made 13. Just grant me for the sake of argument that these numbers are right. Or even for the sake of argument, grant me that one's half and the other's double. That okay, um, 52 to Trump and 26 to Clinton. It's still not equivalent to say, well, then both of them are liars. Both of them have bad character. Neither one of them can be trusted. That's not true. One of them is facing a civil case uh, for actions behaved in the commitment of a rape. One of them clearly attempted to use uh, money donated for different purposes to, you know, pay off or donate to an illegal donation, uh, just for the nature of it, a uh, attorney general who was investigating him for fraud, and shortly thereafter was rethinking whether that investigation for fraud needed to go forward. You know, you can't equivocate these things. As far as the numbers go, I saw something that was looking at the uh, the Twitter data, just basically making the connection between people who follow, support, retweet Trump, who also follow white supremacist, um, nationalist type Twitter accounts, and those who don't. And what that showed was that 3,549 of 10,000 sampled Trump supporters, more than a third, followed one or more of selected 10 white nationalist Twitter accounts, meaning there probably are more racist and white nationalist Twitter accounts than those 10. These are just the 10 biggest, I, w- I would assume. 16 of the 10,000 Clinton supporters followed one or more of those same 10 white nationalist accounts. So a statistically insignificant percentage with Clinton versus a third with Trump. And if you do the extrapolation and just say, well, okay, Trump claims to have, what, 30, 40, 45, 50 million followers, supporters, you know, Trump, the, the Trump base... The relationship of 10,000 up to 40 million can't be mathematically done to say, well, okay, therefore, you're talking about almost 15 million people who are racist, white supremacist, segregationist, nationalists. But it sure as hell ain't nothing. And that's what gets me. We're not talking about nothing here. And yet, 
all the dialogue that I've gotten from people is, well, what happens is, if you go in with a perspective that says, I've decided either that Clinton is evil, or that the religious right is right, or that I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Republican and that's how I'm always going to vote, or the other side of that coin, the Democrat side of the coin, or that I've got a libertarianism as my political philosophy that is more of a religion than a philosophy, and it drives and guides everything I think and do. If you're one of those people, then when Clinton points out that there's something seriously disturbing about what a huge base of anti-minority, anti-immigrant, anti-people of different religious faiths, in some ways anti-women mentality goes on there, that that's deplorable. The first thing that some of my family members have thought is, well, she called, she just called me deplorable. She just said, I'm beyond hope. She just said, I'm a terrible person. Did she? She divided Trump into two different groups and said, one of these groups is people who have you know, conscience and they're voting the way they vote for policy reasons from for other reasons. And then I got this other group out here who really, given the chance, would bring slavery back. You know, and we saw that. There, there was one of these other articles. I'm going to stop quoting my Facebook page. There was one of these other articles that was, you know, a group of people who were voting, some staggering number, 10% or more, want, think that we should be bringing slavery back. My question was, why do you put yourself in the group of people who hold values that you claim you reject? Why would you do that? You'd only do it if it was so important to you to be angry at Clinton that you'd denigrate yourself to make that happen. Don't get me wrong. There's bias all over the place. I've got bias. Mine doesn't come through the perspective of a political party. My bias comes instead through my point of view about the U.S. Constitution and that, A, we should understand what the document says and B, we should try our best to follow it. <laughs> um, simple, not a really radical idea there. And that we can have honest differences of opinion over what some of the things that are said there say and mean. But we can't just exempt ourselves from the responsibility of owning to the document. And, and if a document, and if the authors of the Federalist Papers, for example, spoke clearly that they didn't think that we should be letting political parties run any of this government show, that we therefore can't let political parties, political partisanship, um, committee positions and majorities in the Senate dictate whether or not we actually are going to follow the first couple of articles of the Constitution or not. That's that's kind of crazy. So I feel like what I want to do here is two more things, just to kind of wrap up. I, of course, have no idea how long the wrap-up is going to take, but I want to do a couple things just to kind of explain why I've why I feel so passionately about the way that I voted. Could I, as somebody who has no real personal passion toward uh, Hillary Clinton the person or Hillary Clinton the candidate, uh, why do I feel so strongly that I voted in the right way, uh, which I explained in the Constitutional Crisis episode of Inappropriate Conversations, number 188, uh, came out eh, probably late September. But to do that, I think I'd probably need to explain one more concept. And then I want to get to a few very specific kind of policy type answers for my family members who had the courtesy, if you want to call it that, in recent days to staunchly defend their positions even if those positions might have in some ways some flaws to them. And most of those flaws coming out of bias, uh, coming out of some these of notions of supremacy. I've got to defend my Christianity. I've got to defend my gender. I've got to defend my whiteness or whatever it is. But you know, to me, one of the things that I've been trying to do here, 
and this is going to lead me to the different drummer, is to explain to people why it's not only not wrong to cross party lines when you feel like that's the thing that needs to be done for the good of the country. It's actually patently patriotic. And we have examples of it that we can look at, none better than Alexander Hamilton. This might be where I would insert the drummer music. As I've said before, I intend to slap a header and footer on this thing and put it out into the ether pretty quickly. So I won't do that. And I'll also give Alexander Hamilton no more quality time than I gave Thomas Jefferson when I named him a different drummer. I had him as a different drummer in the very first year, uh, probably September of 2010, if I'm guessing, August or September. You know, looking at the you know, kind of the question of, you know, um, making America great again and what does that even mean and, um, you know, how, how do we reconcile that and deal with it? I believe I called that episode Capitalism in the Realm of Ideas. And I probably only gave Thomas Jefferson three or four minutes at the max, which seems completely inadequate for talking about such a key founding father. And I'm about to make the same mistake again. So quickly, first sentence of Wikipedia on Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he was an American statesman and one of the founding fathers of the United States. That pretty much covers it. <laughs> no, a little further. He was an influential interpreter and promoter of the U.S. Constitution, as well as the founder of the nation's financial system, the Federalist Party, the United States Coast Guard, and the New York Post newspaper. First Secretary of the, Tre of the Treasury. The best place to get better background that I'm going to provide here, at least in my opinion, on Hamilton, is a podcast that I've called, uh, that I, I've listened to recently. It's not mine. It's a uh, Stuff You Should Know podcast. And just within the last month or so, this particular show dealt with Alexander Hamilton, most influential, most influential American, as a question. Uh, so they were answering the question of whether he was the most influential American. I'll tell you that a lot of us have probably paid more attention to Alexander Hamilton lately for one of two reasons. Either the record-setting musical that's appeared on Broadway... I bought that CD this year on kind of a lark, having only heard one song before, and got to be honest, it's uh, it's as good as advertised. But really, the the place to put most of the credit is on the inspiration behind the book. So yeah, any musical is going to be a combination of staging and music, but even the music can then be divided into the actual uh, you know the melody harmony. In this case, the hip hop of it all compared to the words, and where did the words come from? Well. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda. Words and music are both him, but he hasn't been shy about acknowledging that a 2004 biography just called Alexander Hamilton, written by Ron Chernow, was his inspiration. So I think any credit that I might use to point to that Stuff You Should Know podcast probably came about because they decided to cover it because of the musical. And the musical, of course, came in the aftermath of this book because Miranda read the book and decided that it might actually make an interesting musical. And as I mentioned before... He wasn't wrong. But one of the most revealing moments in that biography, and coming actually into and through the second act of the musical as well, is that you've got Alexander Hamilton, who's not just a part of the Federalist Party, but one of the founders of the Federalist Party, willing to not only go against his party in a political election where he was dealing with somebody that he thought was just a political opportunist, a rich trust fund, spoiled rotten, um, you know, unmoored, unreliable person who didn't think deeply enough about anything to hold the office. Sound familiar? Maybe it does to some, maybe it doesn't to others. Don't know. Versus Thomas Jefferson, who he viewed as his absolute political enemy. 
you know, Jefferson and, and Madison did not get along, did not see eye to eye on a lot of things. And what's amazing to me, if you look at the history closer than I have, to be honest, is how often Hamilton got it wrong and, well, no, how often Hamilton got it right and Jefferson got it wrong. The few exceptions would be in the areas of uh, First Amendment expression, freedom of speech, so forth and so on. Uh, not that I think Hamilton was far afield there, but I think where Jefferson had some things that were uh, short-sighted was on the things that were actually Hamilton's specialty as a businessman and as somebody who was going to try to establish the U.S. Treasury in such a way that would provide instant credibility to the country, but also manage what could have been a crippling war debt coming out of the Revolutionary War and ultimately going to and through the War of 1812. So what you've got is Hamilton saying, yes, there are very few political ideas that I have in common with Thomas Jefferson. In many ways, he stands for the opposite of me. He is the... Uh, He's the conservative to my liberal, or the liberal to my conservative. He's the the enemy of my political party, and why would I throw my hat behind him? But in doing so, he did so not only at the expense of, to some degree, maybe some of his reputation, but certainly uh, led to the ultimate demise of his entire political party, because he valued protecting the U.S. Constitution more than he valued defending his own political party. He was one of those authors of the Federalist Papers, majority author, as a matter of fact. And James Madison, one of the other authors, probably sided more often with Jefferson than he did with Hamilton, but both of them agreed about one thing, and that's that the U.S. Constitution is not a document that is written by the political partisanship. It's bigger than that. It's the thing you hear and see in memes from time to time, saying I'm sick and tired of people being described or describing themselves as Republican or Democrat. Screw all that. We're Americans. That's a bigger idea. It's a more important idea. But for me, it's hard to expect the Republicans today, the Senate Republicans in particular, can I hold them to a standard of upholding the U.S. Constitution, of valuing the U.S. Constitution so passionately that they would rather vote against their party's short-term political interest? We're seeing the exact opposite of that. We're seeing what Hamilton might have believed, rightly or wrongly, was a bunch of Aaron Burr behavior out of the overwhelming majority of the Republican Party. And I'm naming Alexander Hamilton as a different drummer for this episode in particular because Hamilton demonstrated the qualities that I'm personally trying to emulate. I don't mind being a registered Republican who's voting for Hillary Clinton. That doesn't bother me anywhere near as much as being a registered Republican supporting Republicans whose behavior would destroy the balance of power and the divisions in our system of government because they're ignoring the U.S. Constitution and creating the biggest constitutional crisis in my lifetime. I think my different drummer, Alexander Hamilton, would fight against that ferociously as well. The Facebook group Christians Tired of Being Misrepresented put a meme up maybe a year ago or maybe more than a year ago that said this, When you build bridges... You are misunderstood by both sides. This is who I strive to be, and maybe I succeed and maybe I don't. I don't know. Maybe many of the misunderstandings between me and family members are my fault as much as anyone else's. I don't know. But I will say this. I don't come into anything as Republican first, or conservative or liberal first, or radical moderate first, or Protestant Christian first. I try to come at it from the perspective of when we're done— we need to have a bridge that reaches both sides. And I'm not naive. Doing that, or trying to do that, 
is going to create a perspective from people that you are somehow betraying them. I've been told by these same family members on more than one occasion that I confuse them, that they can't understand me. And I don't believe that there is any lack of mental and intellectual acumen on the part of these people. These are not stupid people. They are well and truly capable of understanding me. But to do so, they'd have to take off their current glasses, whether rose-tinted or whatever tint they've got, and look at things as they nakedly are. And that's a struggle for folks. So I want to respond point by point to just a few things where people have thrown out some issues and sort of tried to challenge me. One of them was that, um, you know, I can't be mad at Trump over uh, seemingly openly courting KKK support when Clinton sought and got the support of people like Robert Byrd, who actually had his own KKK credentials. And I guess that what I would say is when you bring up Clinton's past positions on things like gay marriage or uh, other issues, to me, some of these things reflect growth. That um, if you aren't changing, you aren't growing. So is all growth just a sign of somebody who's a flip-flop liar who can't be trusted? Or can you draw a line and say, no, 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 over maybe a 30-year span of time, I would expect that people would learn more, put themselves into different situations, encounter different situations, um, meet people, think more deeply, think differently as a result of stuff that they've learned, and come up with a different perspective. But that's kind of an anti-conservative mentality. In some ways, political conservatism is all about the idea of I have to think and do the same things I've always thought and done because, um, well, again, I, I sometimes encounter Christians who really struggle with the Holy Spirit. That they're certainly okay with God the Father. They love the law more than the Lord, even, a lot of them. And the ones who don't love the law more than the Lord love the Lord a lot. So they're on board with Jesus, too, especially if they believe that that everything that Jesus said is absolutely proscriptive and that Jesus never did anything that was um, a parable, for example, or relevant to a particular place and time. But the Holy Spirit they really struggle with because this is the place where God might lead in a direction that there isn't a good parable to refer back to as a parallel text, or there isn't a specific law in the first five books of, of the Old Testament that tells us exactly what to do in that situation. The Holy Spirit is unreliable, unpredictable, or in the eyes of some Christians, perhaps non-existent. And that's kind of where I struggle, because I believe that I'm speaking on many things the way I'm speaking, and to the people that I'm sharing my thoughts with, because I've been led by the Lord to do so. When I say led by the Lord, I mean the Holy Spirit leading me to do so. I've heard answered prayer. I talk about it slightly in Inappropriate Conversations 44 and a lot in Inappropriate Conversations 80. You know, those episodes might have just been a year or so apart, but I talk, I've talked about it a lot most recently and most directly recently in 2012. But I've actually kind of hit it in a Walk the Earth episode in just the last couple of months as well. This is this is part of my story. It's part of my testimony. But if if you deny the Holy Spirit, if you don't give God credit for leading you in what may seem initially to others like a different direction, then you're going to miss out on everything that God has in mind for you. The thing I've told people is, I fully believe that God has the power to transform the life of anyone if the Lord wants to. If you've got a person who is gay and Christian 
and praying to the Lord to make them not gay anymore. It is absolutely within the realm of possibility for me to conceive of the Lord intervening and changing that person's whatever it is. If it's genetic, changing their genetics. If it's brain chemistry, changing their brain chemistry. If it's just a predilection, changing their predilection. And we just don't have good examples of that happening. We don't have good examples of that happening without some form of quasi-torture being done to the individual. That's not the Holy Spirit intervening. That's a poor human substitute for behavior modification without trusting the Holy Spirit to act. So in many cases, I've got a slightly different perspective because I actually have more faith in God than people who put God in a box and won't allow anything to happen that falls outside of what may have happened and been written down, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago. And I get it. For those folks, that's scary. And when you're afraid of something, we use a word for that that is some derivative of phobia. And therefore, people get called things like Islamophobic or homophobic or whatever. And they react negatively to it. And I guess you can understand why they, why they might. Let me share some words and quote directly for perhaps the first time this one of the anonymous family members. Uh, the quote that I was, uh, the words that were shared with me go like this. We should not engage in personal attacks. This is referring again to Clinton <clears throat> dividing Trump's world into two groups. Um, we should not in engage in personal attacks. I'm saying that it's wrong. It damages us all. Republicans want to protect our border, not because we are racist against the Mexicans, but because we understand that we do not have enough tax income to provide to all the illegal aliens crossing our border to support them with entitlements. But we are labeled racist. We want to protect our daughters from predators. But we, but when we don't want men and ladies, men in the ladies' room, we're labeled homophobes. We are labeled merely because our policy stands, and not because of our actions or even beliefs. Yet people have bought into the tactic and believe that they there really are large groups of all these people. There aren't. It's a fallacy. Do those people exist? Sure. But in reality, they exist in small numbers and on both sides. Well. Let me hit this. There was one other mention earlier in the uh, in the letter that I received or the, the text that I received about abortion and um, this person saying that calling a rapist a rapist is fine, but calling an abortion advocate a murderer is ad hominem and damaging. I think that this person was agreeing with me on that issue, so I'm just going to let that go. Inappropriate conversations have spoken to so many of these issues before that it would be a mistake for me to restate them. Family members who've ignored everything I've had to say can continue to do so. Talked about sex education and inappropriate conversations 14, going all the way back to June 2010. Talked about race relations just a few episodes later, same month, uh, dealing with uh, majority experience, uh, majority rule and minority experience. That was inappropriate conversations 17. I dealt with uh, abortion in November of 2010, inappropriate conversations 36, raising the questions that I then turned around and attempted to comprehensively answer in a two-part episode, 59 and 60, coming out in June the next year, 2011. So I've been speaking to these things for quite some time now. A comprehensive perspective on how I think we should interpret um, the Bible and deal with people who are sexual minorities is the word you hear used. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that word, that term, but I dealt with that comprehensively in another one of these really long, inappropriate conversations episodes. I want to say that was probably around about November of 2012, if I were guessing. Um, something, 
something in that ballpark, because it was right after the election in 2012, and it was me dealing with the whole issue of, of whether or not denying somebody is who they say they are is an act of violence. The violence of denial was inappropriate conversations 106. So there's a lot of detail behind these issues that I've shared in the past, and I won't presume to cover all that ground again. But I will hit a couple of things here. One of them, this notion of entitlements. To me, we are all paying today, whether it's via some sort of government program or some sort of insurance program or not, we are still paying today for the cost of providing medical care to the uninsured. The reason we're paying for it is in the, well, did you ever wonder why Americans pay more for the same kind of healthcare procedure that others in other countries, even not just faraway European countries, but even like Canada, pay a very different rate for what happens if your appendix bursts in America versus what happens if your appendix bursts in Canada or Spain or England. And the difference is that we have a policy that says that doctors will do no harm and save the life of anybody. So when when you get sick and somebody calls 911 and um, an ambulance shows up and takes you to the hospital and you go into the emergency room and your situation is viewed as very serious and triage quickly puts you into care and you get life-saving medical care, that is going to happen regardless of whether or not you're covered. That's the way we work. The front door to medical care is always completely unlocked and wide open. It is the way our medical practices work. It's the Hippocratic Oath in action. That's who we are. But at the same time, by not insisting that there's a comprehensive insurance for everyone, when someone goes through that and gets essentially free care or indigent care because there's a bill there, they just cannot and never will be able to pay it, then the rest of us pay it because the hospital has to not go bankrupt and therefore cover the expense of that care in other ways. And among the other ways, and I'm assuming this, I'm the only member of my family growing up who didn't work in a hospital at some point between, you know, birth and the end of college. The rest of my siblings and both of my parents spent some time working inside that field directly. I just wasn't one of them. But that shows up in, in the cost of all the services for everybody else. So this notion of entitlement doesn't really address the issue. The fact is, we are paying for the emergency medical services provided to everybody anyway. Do we fund it or not, is the question. And you know, I think we've all heard some exaggerated figures, the, the uh, number of people who are uh, voting illegally. So far, the only documented cases we've got of people voting twice or multiple times or fraudulently are Trump supporters. And it goes back to what I said about how dangerous it is to talk about an assassination attempt that wasn't an assassination attempt. When you've convinced yourself that everyone else is voting illegally, and therefore you try to vote illegally too to counteract the illegal voters that you perceive to be there when perhaps they're actually not, then you've committed the crime that you're afraid of because your perspective is flawed to begin with. We've got the odds of winning the lottery being higher right now than the odds of somebody successfully committing voter fraud in this country based on studies that have been done uh, over several years at the at the university sort of uh, cross-verified level. I'm, I'm struggling for my words here, but you know, we've got validated uh, analytical accounts that say this problem is not as big as you think it is. Uh, even just today, family members were posting things online that said that Obama was encouraging illegal immigrants to, to vote, and all of our collective shared friends on the Republican side of the of the coin were freaking out about it. Well, 
It was a hoax. At what point do you not turn to the people who are fooling you by putting false things out there and getting you to react and share the falsehood and may even say even more egregious things related to the falsehood? At what point do you stop and turn to your own house and say, we've got to clean up our act? We've got no credibility whatsoever. We're hurting people. We're endangering people. we got people threatening to bring guns to the polling places to prevent what they think is a widespread instance of something that, frankly, isn't happening any more often than you could measure just randomly. It just It's a problem that we're creating because we've told ourselves that we've got a political worldview and that political worldview has to drive everything. It frankly bothers me, and I think it would bother Jesus of Nazareth as well, that so many Christians talk about how important their Christian worldview is, that they're intentionally skewing any information that comes to them, anything that does happen to penetrate their very carefully maintained bubble to keep ideas out. Whatever that does get through, they're skewing it and making sure that they reinterpret it from the perspective of what they call a Christian worldview. In other words, the right rose-colored glasses have to be on, the right bias has to be attached. And that's offensive enough. I don't think that that's something that Christians are called to do. But you compare that to what happens when you do it politically, and you've got kind of a formula for disaster. And so I think that's what happens when you look at um, the delivery of emergency medical care as some sort of an entitlement. And when you would prefer to rip a family apart, to right some wrong that happened at the border 10, 15 years ago, to finding a more creative way of addressing our issues here and now. But the one I really wanted to call out and, and kind of point out and object to ties back to two particular previous inappropriate conversations that I think are worth throwing a citation at. One dealt with what I think the problem with Trump's you know, terminology is in terms of his uh, self-proclaimed campaign against political correctness. Uh, I had an episode at 177, came out about a year ago, November of last year, called Transitional Terminology. And it really breaks my heart to think that to look back at that older generation within the family, the people who raised me to treat people with dignity and respect, to call people by the name they wanted to be called by, are now joining the Trump campaign's rhetoric about getting rid of, of political correctness. In many cases, political correctness simply means that if this person would rather be called Jim than James, then you're, I'm going to ground you, young man, if you keep calling him James. Especially if you keep calling him James when you know he hates the name James and doesn't want to be called James and wants to be called Jim and you're refusing to call him Jim, what kind of a sniveling little brat are you? Just extend that to somebody who would prefer to be called by a different pronoun than what you might guess you should call them just right off the top of your head. You know, the, the meme I like on this one is, is if you're walking down the street and you see someone and you can't determine just from looking at them what their gender is, keep on walking, it's not your problem. But I dealt with the, the terminology we use in Inappropriate Conversations 177. I dealt with the bathroom issue somewhat tangentially, but directly enough to cite it anyway in Inappropriate Conversations 182, coming out earlier this year, I believe in April, called Murdering Friendship. And in that it dealt with kind of the cost of homophobia to our relationships, including um, heterosexual men who are friends with other heterosexual men in a totally non-sexual way, that homophobia does damage to those relationships as well, including a very detailed bathroom example with a Republican senator behaving badly. It's also worth noting, for all the fingers that we seem so willing to point at Bill Clinton again, 
as if we're not, as if we haven't made our case there once and done. Uh, most of the uh, official opposition to Bill Clinton for his immorality have come from people who've committed just as bad immorality as worse, unless we need to tell ourselves that Clinton, because his name is Clinton, is so evil that whatever he's done is worse than sexually molesting an entire set of boys. Dennis Hastert should not be throwing any any mud in the direction of Bill Clinton. And anybody who is throwing mud at Clinton and not throwing more mud at Hastert needs to ask themselves a few questions. But no, as I wrap up, I want to kind of harken back to those particular two previous inappropriate conversations and just look at some of the things that my dear family member has thrown into the mix for conversation related to bathrooms and the relative safety of women. I'll just note for the record as I go into this a little bit that I did share very directly in a reply kind of response to some pushback that I got over, again, my being willing to criticize my own house, that I think Christians who want to fling mud should uh, have their house in order, and that if Republicans want to accuse Democrats of doing things, they best not be doing the exact same things. That I think probably there's enough evidence to suggest that where there's smoke, there's fire with Donald Trump, and where Trump has said he's done things which would be um, arguably sexual assaults and, at the very least, non-consensual and inappropriate behavior, that we might want to take his word for it, especially when there's a lot of women who say that we should, and that even if you want to discount all of the who he grabbed by their whatevers um, and just say, well, I'm just going to ignore all of that stuff, it's kind of hard to ignore a grown man going in and peeping on uh, beauty pageant women changing clothes. And even if you decided somehow you were okay with it, if they were all 18, but they weren't, oh, they weren't on board, they weren't consenting. I had a real problem with that. I, I can't overlook it. But when you're talking about 15 year old girls, you're talking about uh, a pedophilia type of a violation here. You're talking about somebody who's crossed a line and Trump said he's done so on radio interviews. Girls testify that yes, he, what he said he did, he did. And other people who are part of the the beauty pageant process, who were neither contestants, underage girls at the time, nor Trump or Donald Stern or, or uh, Howard Stern, have said the same thing. There's plenty of evidence. Let me put it this way. If you had evidence this good about something Clinton had done wrong, it wouldn't be so damned hard for the FBI to figure out they could press charges, right? I mean, this is solid. This is corroborating evidence, time and place validation, multiple eyewitnesses, um, his own ex, you know, ex parte conversations about it. You get plenty of reason to think that maybe we, the biggest threat among our four leading uh, presidential candidates to women in bathrooms is probably Donald Trump. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I discount Bill Clinton. He's not running for office. And in fact, don't throw Bill Clinton at me. Don't you dare throw Bill Clinton at me. I had two chances in the 1990s to vote for Bill Clinton, and I declined both times. But if you cast a vote for Donald Trump, you've got to answer one big question. What is your excuse? I listened, family members, to your counsel, to your advice, and your wisdom. And I took your advice to say you shouldn't vote for this guy, and I didn't vote for him. What is your excuse? And why is me providing the same kind of advice now some sort of egregious, biased negativity that you can't possibly comprehend, that you're confused by it. It doesn't make any sense to me. No. Last but not least, let's talk about ladies' room. 
I think one of the things that we share, and I think one of the ways you can deal with these issues when you're talking with people in, in a collegial way, whether they be friends or family, but you have different perspectives, or you're coming at it from different angles, is, is to try to find the common ground. And I will still suggest, as I have this entire episode long, that the common ground is hard to get to. And it's hard to get to because one person or one group of people is coming at it with a hardcore bias. And they're perceiving anybody who has a slightly different point of view is being just as biased. And the assumption is, well, you're voting for Clinton, therefore you can't be trusted, you're full of bias, you're one of those people, you're a closet liberal, yada, 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 whatever you want to say, right? But the bottom line is, I'm not bringing that baggage to it. If Merrick Garland had been confirmed by the U.S. Senate within the normal course of action after Obama had you know, put him forward, I probably wouldn't be voting for Clinton this year. It really is that simple. I could probably find a third party that I would believe in because that's what I've done three of the last four election cycles is vote for third parties because a lot of things that people say they're upset about with the influence of Wall Street and money and uh, greed and corruption and, you know, PACs and all that. Yeah, I'm upset about that with Clinton just as much as I'm upset about it with Trump. But in this case, I've got a U.S. Constitution to defend, and I'm more interested in what the Constitution actually says than paranoid delusional fears about how the court may or may not operate relative to the Bill of Rights. I say they're paranoid and delusional because they have no connection with what's historically happened. They're not real. But no, here's the area where I think there's some potential common ground. Maybe I'm ending on a high note here. I don't know. But what we call judicial activism today is a really hard concept to get our heads around. It's, it's kind of a mushy idea. And to the extent that judicial activism is just dog whistle code for any judge making a decision I disagree with, well, then it's nonsense, and we should stop using the language. It's, it's, it's unhelpful in the extreme. But there are places where it's worthwhile. Let me use one example. I don't really spend a lot of time campaigning for or defending or or uh, getting bent out of shape about the uh, the exercise or the use of hate crime um, laws. That if, if a hate crime law isn't applied when it perhaps could have been, I don't tend to get worked up about that. If I'm in a state that doesn't have a hate crime law and other people think it should, I don't, I don't tend to get worked up about that. Because to me, I think that the better way of handling it is to say, here's a criminal act, whether it be rape or assault or murder, whatever it is. And that act is the same act no matter who that's performed against and no matter what's going on in the mind of the person performing that act because it gets a little bit tricky when you start guessing what that person's mentality actually was at the time they actually did whatever it is they're accused of doing it. It gets very difficult. But I would be totally okay if instead of there being two laws for murder, one for murder in the first degree and one for a hate crime of murder, to where... Somehow both of them apply and they create some sort of multiple. To me, it would be enough to say that if we find somebody guilty of murder and their behavior fits the entire profile of what a hate crime is, all that means is that they clearly pose a clear and present danger to other people. They are likely to kill more gay people or uh, more black people or burn down more black churches or whatever, whatever their hatred, wherever it comes from, right? Um, it's enough to say that if I've got a sentencing guideline that says that I could sure, I could put this in jail, person in jail for 15 years or life, I'm going to go with life. Not because I've decided what hate is, what the definition of hate is, and I can prove that they fit that definition and that they are a hate criminal and not just a criminal. That's just enough to say no. The things that make this person a hate criminal 
make them a clear and present danger to other people. And therefore, the fact that they are persistently a danger to others, that this wasn't a one-off crime of passion of some sort. This was an intentional act based on this person's attitude toward a group, and more people who fit that group profile are out there. Therefore, this person is a danger to more of those people that we should sentence accordingly. But, you know, that's one of the examples of where on the political spectrum I'm far more conservative than liberal. It's part of being a radical moderate. A moderate isn't somebody who has no opinion or a wishy-washy opinion about everything. I have strong opinions about most things. It's just those strong opinions sometimes align with people that we call Democrats and sometimes align with people we call Republicans. And sometimes they don't align with either one of them because they're both ultimately full of crap when the day's done. But on this issue of bathrooms, I think one of the worst ways you can you know, take that step down the slippery slope toward judicial activism or totalitarianism is when you attempt to pass a law that makes explicitly illegal something that already is illegal. It's always a mistake to do that. That is one of the things that I, I went through the hate crime example just to kind of you know, pave the way for what my mentality is and how it applies to both situations where this kind of legislative slash judicial activism, whatever you want to call it, is beloved by liberals and hated by conservatives. Well, this time I'm going to, I'm going to hit one that is probably more beloved by conservatives and hated by liberals, but it's just as wrong to try to pass another law that says you're not allowed to sexually assault women in a bathroom. We already have a law for that. And so when you think that you're trying to protect your daughter from predators, whether you have a daughter or not, because you don't want men in the ladies' room, you're labeled a homophobe? Well, you're probably not. You're probably labeled transphobic because what you are is afraid of trans people. Because here's the IQ test. Here's the quiz question. Here's where the rubber really hits the road. In the known documented history of American legal jurisprudence, how many cases are there of a trans woman assaulting a woman in a bathroom? Or a trans man assaulting a trans, uh, assaulting a man in a bathroom? Or any combination of that stew you want to put together? Where somebody who is, you know, transsexual in our definition of what that means has committed an assault, whether a sexual assault or a hate crime of some sort, you know, just to use the terminology, how many cases? And if the answer is zero, if the answer is, my fellow conservatives, you have had more than a year and a half now, come up with a freaking name. Give me an example. Name me one case in the history of our country where the problem you're actually trying to solve even exists. Because the other problem, um, a man who's a sexual predator going into a bathroom and either harassing or sexually assaulting or violently physically assaulting a woman, do we already have laws for that? And those laws are already imposed. And many people have suggested that we ought to figure out how we can... I get to the truth of the matter and identify what is that exactly has gone on in Donald Trump's past and perhaps apply some of those existing laws to Mr. Trump. Because let me go back to where I started at the beginning. This man is a supremacist. He doesn't think that the rules should apply to him the same way that they apply to everyone else. He's got asterisks whether he realizes it or not when it comes to notions of all of us being created equal, that he wants him to be more equal. He wants... The entitlements of somebody who, you know, is a visitor in our country, whether welcomed or unwelcomed, getting sick. He would like to establish a place where that person simply dies in the parking lot because they're not allowed inside that hospital. Or that's not what he thinks, but he's been unable and unwilling to articulate his vision. 
We've been waiting for four years now for a clear and articulate Republican alternative to the problem of how do you provide both a front door and a back door to create a a holistic system to delivering medical care in this country that doesn't create the problems we're having now with um, insurance costs through the roof and procedure costs through the roof and fraud perhaps at all levels, uh, through the roof, that we have these problems because you get what you incent. And we're incenting a system that isn't holistic and isn't sustainable. And we ought to deal with it. But instead of dealing with those problems, instead of having four full years to come up with even a comic joke of an alternative, we've done nothing because we've been more obsessed with whether or not somebody who is sexually different from us in a way that we frankly may never understand. We're trying to make sure that those people can't use a bathroom that they feel safe in. And we're, we're presuming to say that the reason we feel this way is well-intentioned and I shouldn't be called transphobic and nobody should question my judgment or my integrity. Nobody should ask me to think more deeply and broadly about this because after all, I need laws to make sure that men can't assault women in bathrooms. What state do you live in? I've lived in the same state as every member of my family currently lives with the exception of one. And every member of my extended family, with the exception of maybe two, in every one of those states, it was illegal for a man to go into a bathroom and stick his head underneath the stall and watch a woman pee. It was illegal then when I was a kid. It's illegal now when I'm an adult. We don't need a new law. We don't need a new law in North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Missouri, Ohio. We don't need a new law in any of these places. The laws already exist. So by trying to support a situation where we re-legislate something that's already illegal, you're engaging in the exact kind of judicial-slash-legislative activism that conservatives have said that they've always been willing to oppose. It was a problem. It was a hill upon which Ronald Reagan and his policies were willing to fight and die. It was the problem to be solved. And here we are as a group of presumably conservative people, at least within my family circles, dear family member, making the same mistakes that we vowed we're trying to solve, ignoring character when we said that character was all that actually mattered in the end, being willing to acknowledge for all these years that politics is dirty business, but if a lady is going to do the dirty business, it's the end of the world as we know it, and therefore I'd rather vote for somebody who watches 15-year-old girls change clothes. We're okay with that. I've been waiting for somebody to say, hey, You don't know for sure whether Trump was engaged in a rape of that 13-year-old girl. She might have been asking for it. She might have been a willing party. I'm shocked that that hasn't happened, as a matter of fact. I think if the news were more broadly covered, it would have happened. Because at some point, somebody would have to realize, what am I? A wayward Catholic priest here? 13-year-olds can't consent. Oh, but then again, if we go back to one more reference to recent inappropriate conversations, and the one simply called consent, inappropriate conversations 186, Coming out in early July. The fact of the matter is, if you don't believe there is such a thing as consent, you're really going to have a hard time making the right decision about right and wrong, about morality even, when it comes to questions where consent is in play. So here we are. We're at an impasse. Um, Perhaps on the verge of having conversations we're not allowed to have with each other because they're just a little bit too touchy. Because you know what? In just a few days, it's going to be the day after the election in 2016. And no matter what happens, I think the day after the election is going to be a darker, more stressful day in this country than the day of or any of the days preceding it. When 2012 went down, 
I was on vacation, and I was frankly glad to not be in the swing state that I live in at the time. Um, but even from a faraway place, sitting a couple blocks away from a beach, trying to relax, and trying to, frankly, create the right distance from all the election drama, I mistakenly believed that after the election was over and things were decided, and especially with an incumbent president winning and being reelected, and therefore it not being a matter of, of trying to manage an upcoming change that we're, may have been, we all won't be happy about at the same time. It was basically going to be status quo. I don't think I've ever been attacked online in a trolling-style fashion by people that I personally know to anywhere near the degree that was true in the two or three days after the election in 2012. I was what was wrong with America today. I should be ashamed of myself. How do I call myself American? Why haven't I left the country already? How dare I? And it wasn't because I voted for Obama, and this person was very anti-Obama. Anti-Obama to an extent that maybe that person should unpack and examine that a little bit and decide if maybe there's some phobia behind that because it seemed irrationally intense. No, that was the response I got for voting for a third party. Not voting for Romney made me Satan incarnate. We don't think that's going to happen again this year. I think it's more likely to happen this year on the 9th of November than it did in the entire month of November four years ago. I think we're at risk here. And what that risk means from a family perspective is that the smart move here is to just say, hey, don't post this inappropriate conversations on your personal page because this is something where you might have these opinions, you might share these opinions with your friends, but you can't talk about it among your family. Meaning, some of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life, some of the biggest issues I've ever had to deal with, are things I'm not allowed to talk about with members of my family. Their view of Christianity is just enough different from mine that if I decided I wanted to go into a venture and spend a significant amount of money trying to support ministries that reach out to kids kicked out of their home by homophobic parents and left homeless in the street and incredibly vulnerable to violence, you know, hunger, disease, all kinds of things, that's the kind of financial decision you'd want to talk about with friends and family. And unfortunately, there are things in my life right now that I'm more confident I can talk about with friends, because with family, it's just not allowed. If we don't see this as broken, if we don't see this as dangerously fundamentally flawed, if we can't come up with any creative ways of bridging that gap and dealing with it, if we're standing in the middle of a bridge and just having to acknowledge the fact that not only that when you build bridges, you're misunderstood by both sides, but what happens if when you build bridges, the side where you truly live the side where your home is, the side where your legacy is, the side where your family is, doesn't just doesn't just misunderstand you. They'd rather burn down the bridge you're standing than welcome you home. Well, what do we do with that? Because I'm sitting here with a spectrum right now, dear family member. On the positive, most unconditional positive regard, best case scenario side of that is, we just never really talk to each other again about things that are this important. And the negative side is, frankly, too frightening to mention. I normally end inappropriate conversations with thanks for listening. And boy, after an episode like this, that kind of seems like an inappropriate thing to say. So maybe I'll just take the magnanimous approach. And instead of ending with thanks for listening, I'll end with please forgive me. 
show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows